Welcome to First Love Online Church with Nyral and O.C. Burnett. Flock is a ministry of First Love Fellowship whose mission is to win the church to Christ through unceasing prayer, intentional discipleship, and missional living. You can support the mission of First Love Fellowship by texting 918-300-4680 or by going to our website at wearefirstlove.com. Now prepare your heart as we share on the James 4 Solution with Nyla Burnett. So we've been talking a lot, you know, for the past month now, my, my wife has been talking about absolute surrender. <coughs> and it's been very important, excuse me, it's been very important to, to understand the posture in which we should which we should be because as saints of God, we don't just want to hold to the responsibility to pray as per the absolute surrender message as it speaks to our total submission to God. We don't just want to understand the responsibility to pray, but we also have to understand the idea that we must connect and commune with the God to whom we pray. And so that's going to be very important in our time. So I'd like to, first of all, get our Bibles turned out to James chapter 4. Are we good? Okay, great, great. All right, so we're going to go to James chapter 4, as it tells us, and I'm going to start from, I'm actually going to start from verse 1, because there's a lot to cover in this chapter. It says here in James chapter 4, starting at verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong, wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Could you imagine after all that, after all of the, the coming to Jesus, after all of the, the praying and, and, and seeking the Lord in all your time at church as a believer, friendship with the world stops it all and, be, and causes you to become an enemy. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. I'm going to read that really quickly. Um, in another version, because I believe I believe it says something. It brings out something in another version that I want to, I want us to see. It says here in James chapter four. Yes, it says here. In verse, we're going to start at five. It says here, or do you think the scripture says in vain? The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously which means that there is a competition between your desires and the spirit in us. 
And the spirit in us has a jealous yearning. It's like God will. You remember the, the, the commandment where God says in, in, in Exodus chapter 20 that he is a jealous God. And, and it, the, the spirit in us yearns jealously. God is willing to join into this fight. The problem is he wants you to be joined into the fight also. He wants you to be fighting to get to him also. If God has to, if God has to not only contend with the enemy for your heart, but also contend with you for your heart, it's a horrible situation for anyone to be in. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. How about that for an encouragement this beautiful Sunday morning? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And finally, do not speak evil of one another. This morning, we're going to talk about the James 4 solution. I noticed that in the body of Christ, there are a lot of Christians who are facing profound bondage, where when you look even in the world of, of, of counseling and, and, and therapy, you'll find that there is very little difference between the people who are in church and the people who are in the world, that they're all dealing with the same type of mental and spiritual strongholds. And it's problematic because we know that as believers in Christ, it says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And yet in the church of God, I hear people say, well, I was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia or I was diagnosed with ADHD or I was diagnosed with this. I was diagnosed with that. And there is no difference or distinction between the world and the church. And it makes me wonder, well, is there indeed a cure from demonic bondage in the body of Christ or is there not? Now, I, I, there's, a, there's a therapist that I know of uh, among, among many who, who speaks to this issue. And he contends that if you actually walk out James chapter 4, he said he has never seen a condition that has not been cured and completely healed uh, if a person has chosen to walk out exactly the instructions that are in this chapter. So we're going to go through them one by one. There are eight of them. So be ready. Be ready to go through your scriptures. It says here, submit to God. That's number one. Submit to God. Now, submitting to God simply speaks to the idea of surrendering control of your life to the Holy Spirit. Now, the one who has surrendered their con the control of their life to the Holy Spirit, you have to ask yourself, if the Holy Spirit has control of my life, do the demonic operations that bring these mental sicknesses, do they also have the ability to overthrow my entire life? Or is the Holy Spirit stronger? Surrendering your life completely over to the Holy Spirit means that you are no longer in charge. The Holy Spirit is in charge. The agenda of the kingdom is what's in charge. So stepping down and submitting your will over to the Lord uh, brings, brings you to the place where self-centeredness comes to an end. We talked about absolute surrender weeks ago. 
You cannot walk in freedom if your heart is still somehow submitted to the dark kingdom. You cannot walk in freedom if somehow your heart is still committed to Satan. So submitting yourself to God is, is what we must do. And, and if your heart is still submitted to the enemy, freedom is not possible. Freedom is not possible under these conditions. Uh, and I'll tell you what, the illusion of freedom is possible. The appearance of freedom is possible, meaning you can get by in the church and look just like everybody else. We can, we can make ourselves look like we're free, make ourselves look like we're okay when really we're not. We're doing just good enough to get by in the eyes of everybody around us while our own lives are not submitted to God. One way you can do that is through works. You do all the work and you do all the stuff and you do all the, the, the right things that the church is asking you to do, right? Right? Go evangelize and preach and witness and, 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 and you know, cook for the merchant. And, and, and we, we do all these things. But really, you can do all these things and not be submitted to God. Last week, we talked about this. The fruit of your prayer life ought to end up in the area of entire sanctification. Holiness is the fruit. Holiness without which no man can see God. That is the fruit of a submitted life to God. That separation unto God is the fruit of it all. Submit yourselves to God. It doesn't mean you're working. It means you're holy. It doesn't mean you're doing stuff. It means you're separated unto God in such a way that you are always available to him. Your life is hid in God, in Christ. You're not a friend of the world. In fact, you detest everything the world is. Whatever this lost and dying world is becoming, you are not that thing. And he gives more grace. He gives more grace to walk this thing out. You can't walk this out on your own strength. God gives more grace to be able to do that. See, the body of Christ has plenty of people who do a lot of good work. The body of Christ has a lot of people that accomplish mighty things. And unfortunately, I hear people boast about it. They say, you know, well, the fruit of the work we do is the souls we win. The fruit of the work we do is the expansion of what we do for God. But the Bible speaks of fruit being holiness. So which one is it? Because you can look like you're okay with God by the work you do. And then when you end up approaching God, he's like, yeah, I know you cast out demons and did many wonderful works in my name, but I never knew you. God is looking for the fruit of holiness. Submit yourselves to God. Number two, resist the devil. Resist the devil. Now, to resist, that word there, resist, it literally speaks of the idea of, of, of setting one's self against something. To take up arms against something. You must declare war on the spirits and sin of your body. Declare war against it and, and develop a, a hatred, develop a hatred for anything that is of the enemy. Now, in developing a hatred, that doesn't mean that you just, to resist doesn't mean just to, to make some attempt to, 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 to stop doing something. What it means is that you actively fight against that thing. So resisting the devil isn't just saying, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. 
Resisting the devil is a posture that says, not only am I submitted to God, but I am against this. I am fighting against this. I don't want myself or anyone around me to be bound to this thing. Resist the devil. Understand every single day that we are indeed at war. We're fighting every single day. You're fighting during the day. You're fighting at the nighttime. If God, if, if for whatever reason you wake up at four o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, understand that at that very moment you were at war. That we're fighting a good fight of faith 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's a war that God intends us to win. Because the enemy, see, understand the workings of the adversary. He will do all kinds of things against you, but we make the mistake of thinking that he's fighting against us to stop us from working. We make the mistake of thinking that the devil is fighting against us so that we'll be ineffective in the kingdom because of the work we do. No, that's not true. See, the enemy is fighting against you so that you won't be holy. He's fighting and trying to prohibit you from being holy and separate unto God. That's what he's doing every single day. And so if he can't stop you from being holy, he'll stop you from feeling like you're holy. He'll have you walking around with guilt and shame and inferiority. See, see because if, if he can stop, if he can convince you that somehow you are defiled, if he can convince you that somehow you're dirty, even though you're walking as best as you know how in the holiness of God, he can render you ineffective. And then your work doesn't even happen because you don't feel that you're you're some, you feel like you're somehow unworthy to even step out and do what God has told you to do. Number three. So we've got resist the devil. First, submit to God. Second, resist the devil. Third, draw near to God. Now, this is something that that as New Testament believers, we ought to be. We ought to do well with, you know, Emmanuel means God with us. So we ought to, it's, like, it's not as though he's far off. It's not as though he's away from us somehow and we can't get to him. Draw near to God, we must thirst for God's presence and desire and desire him more than anything else in our lives. I don't care what we have to give up. I don't care what we have to say goodbye to. We have to become accustomed if we want to walk in freedom to be willing to let go of anything. I was, I was reading something the other day and a person was talking about uh, self-defense and he said the most dangerous person, the most dangerous person is not the one with muscles from head to toe. The most dangerous person isn't even the one who is a skilled fighter. He says the most dangerous person you can deal with is the person who has nothing to lose. Nothing to lose because there is no restraint in that person. There is no place that person won't go. So you can be a skilled fighter. You can be a black belt and whatever. You can be muscles from head to toe. But if you're dealing with someone who has nothing to lose, you've got a fight in your hands. And what I want us to do as believers is be those people with nothing left to lose. We have forsaken all. We have given all. And now the enemy can't even tempt us to, to, to fall back into anything because I am a dead man. I am crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I count myself now dead to sin and alive to God. There is no sin you can entice me with because now I am alive to God. See, the person with that kind of mindset is dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. You want to take my house? Go ahead, try to take my house. I don't care. You want to take my possessions? You want to attack my possessions? I don't care. If you attack my children, I don't care. I'm still pressing on unto God. If you want to attack my wife, that, why do you think Jesus said, if any man does not hate his mother and father and husband and children and even his own life, if you don't hate those things, you are not fit for the kingdom. And he's not telling you to suddenly go on this revolution against your spouse or your children or your parents. But when you compare who they are to who he is, the only thing left is that he is everything and everything else is nothing. And that's what God wants us to be, those people who have nothing to lose. Don't hold on to your own selfish agenda. Don't hold on to your own desires. Be very careful about how you handle desire as a believer because I'm going to tell you something. If I am your enemy, if I am your enemy, and I want to destroy you, I don't need to know how strong you are, how weak you are, or how many connections you've got. All I need to know is what you desire. And I can use your desires to control you. I remember there's a story about the, the early saints <clears throat> not long after the book of Acts. And the Romans would persecute the church, of course, especially during the time of Caligula and, and different Roman emperors who were especially evil. And they would threaten the parents and they would take their children and round them up and say, listen, you know, if you don't, if you don't denounce Christ, we're going to put your children in the Colosseum to be torn apart by wild beasts. And these parents, they, they would... They would go and rush to their children and kiss them and hug them and let them go. And let them go. And you think, well, that's horrible. How could that, how could they do that to their children? Well, their children are alive today. The parents are alive today. Like right now, they're alive. But see, the gospel of Christ would have never spread without the sacrifice of these people. There are people today who will not who will not let go of the name of Jesus no matter what type of torture they go through. See, because these are people who have gotten to the point in life where they have nothing to lose. And if you are a person with nothing to lose, you are an impossible fight for the devil. Impossible. And this is how, this is how we get to the place where we're able to draw near to God, where we thirst for his presence more than anything else on earth, anything in this life. The presence of the Holy Spirit, that's the key to victory. Draw near to God, he says, and he will draw near to you. You make the first move. Make the first move. You draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. See, it says, resist the devil and he will flee. So that's how you keep the devil far away. But then that drawing near to God is the second component to that. 
That's the one that keeps God close. That keeps you close to him. All right. Again, about this drawing near to God, by the way, he wants to be loved by you. Christianity is the only religion in the world that serves a God who wants to be loved. God wants to be loved. He, he exists enthroned in the heavens, and he is so amazing that he wants the love of human beings. He wants your love. He does not just want service. He does not just want works. He wants his greatest commandment fulfilled in you. Mark 12, 28. Love the Lord. Of all the commandments in scripture, this is the first and greatest one. Love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, everything in you. God is saying, love the Lord. That's what he's wanting. We always want and wonder, what is God wanting out of me? He's wanting love. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do as I say. Number four. Cleanse your hands. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And it says, you're, you're, this is where you have to cleanse your own cells from sin. It is the food that demons feed on in the brain, in the soul. And you can starve them out and weaken them to the point that they will collapse and change. If you change your behavior. We talk a lot about grace. We talk a lot about how I can't do things in my own strength. We speak to that a lot in the church. You know, I've joked about it before where you hear a minister say, I sin every day. And I'm like, brother, you should not be sinning every day. You shouldn't be. Like, after everything God has done, you can't go one day, one day without committing something that is an offense to the one that you've given your life to and claim to love. He says, cleanse your hands and your life from sin. If you change your behavior, you can indeed starve out the power of demonic operations over your life. But you must refuse to continue to listen to the voice of the enemy. And that also pertains to negativity and lies that are coming from the kingdom of darkness. Sometimes it's negative. I think it was uh, Aaron last Friday who brought out it. Sometimes it's negative self-talk. You can say things to yourself that are horrible. You ever drive up in a highway and, and you cut somebody off and, you know, somebody honks you or something and you go like, oh, I'm so stupid. Like, no, no, I'm not. No, I am not. Nairal, I think we were driving you to work the other day, uh, yesterday, and I, I cut somebody off because they wouldn't let me off the exit. And <laughs> they honked and flashed their lights. I'm like, yep, I cut you off. I cut you off. You know why? Because if I got my signal on and you're not letting me in, I'm coming in front of you. I'm sorry. Here I come. Big old orange truck. You can't see me? Anyway, but I'm, what I'm not going to do, what I'm not going to do is call myself stupid. I'm not going to speak of myself that way. 
you ever commit a sin and it's like you, you begin to, your whole speech, your whole uh, exercise in your mind, oh, goodness, I need to do better. I, you know, I, I'm this horrible, sinful, wretched, terrible person. Well, stop talking about yourself that way. Speak of yourself in terms of who God has told you you are. If indeed we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, then let's rehearse those things because you're going to imitate what you speak of yourself. We see it today all the time. People, you know, people try to identify as different genders and in their abomination, they start acting and looking more and more like that different gender. It's horrible. But in the body of Christ, we say things about ourselves about things that, that if, we if we imitate it, we're going to become something we don't want to be. Let's imitate Christ. Let's imitate the, the lifestyle of the redeemed. Let's be those people that God has called us to be and speak of ourselves in such a way that we can't help but imitate who we are. All right, it says here, sin gives demons a legal right to be there. And causes a natural separation from God. You cannot rebuke and cast down the things that you're actually participating with. You can't do it. If you're a liar, you can't rebuke lying spirits. If you've given yourself to, to lust and lasciviousness, you can't then decide to rebuke spirits of lust and perversion. You just can't do it. Because it'll say, listen, we were just friends just two minutes ago. And so if you want to change kingdoms, what you have to do is you repent and renounce those things and you will become clean. God will, God will clean you. What, what does it say in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. 1 John 1, 9. So he doesn't just forgive us because being forgiven would still enable that demonic spirit to linger around but no God says he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness which means that he'll put you in a position where that demonic operation has no right to be there so you go to God and you confess your sins and you repent you know that, that's something that I think we, we're trying to move away from in the, in the world right now is the idea of repentance. And sometimes repentance is long drawn out until you are sobbing at that altar. We have to become accustomed to that once again in the body of Christ. People who repent, people who weep over their sins. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. It says here, purify your heart from iniquity. That's number five. Internal sins such as resentment, bad feelings, anger, frustration, bitterness, jealousy, envy, and lust must be forsaken completely. <clears throat> See, verbal forgiveness alone towards people who have offended you is not, is not enough. Oh, I forgive them. I forgave them already, though. Y'all always want me to talk. Y'all always talking about forgiveness. I've forgiven everybody. I forgive Uncle Uncle Pete. I, I forgive Auntie Sue. I forgive my third grade teacher, my fifth grade teacher. I forgive, you know, we 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 say I I I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. But then when we get to talking about them, oh yeah, that person was terrible. I just get triggered when I hear about them. I get triggered when I hear their name. Well, then you're not done. This is an ongoing work that we must practice until all feelings of ill will against those who have afflicted you is gone. 
And if we cannot do that, the open door for demonic operation is indeed still there. The enemy will indeed use that. Here's what I've done um, concerning people who have wronged me and done things. I'll say, Lord, I forgive them. And the practice is, Lord, bring their soul to you. Bless them with the glory of your kingdom. Right? Like bless those who curse you, right? And so sometimes we've encountered people in life who, because of their actions, they have attempted to bring a curse upon us. So you bless them. You bless them. Lord, save them. Fill them with the Holy Spirit. Lord God, bring their life to the place where, just like you saved me, that you caused them to enter into the kingdom of God. That's how it's done. And you pray salvation. You pray that Christ be revealed to them. And you pray enough until you realize your own depravity, your own sinfulness uh, was, was, was looked over so that you could come into the kingdom. It was overlooked and washed, really not overlooked, washed away so that you could come into the kingdom. May God do the same thing on behalf of those who have wronged us. I don't care if it was a parent. I don't care if it was an ex. I don't care if it was a former spiritual leader. I don't care if it's a current spiritual leader. Until all ill will is gone. Because if you're still carrying those things, the enemy will use that as an open door to drag your soul to hell. It's that serious. After all the hurt and pain and abuse and then salvation and serving God and doing all this stuff for God, you look up and realize I did not forgive. And that's what kept me out of the kingdom. Purify your heart from iniquity. Get rid of the ugly that the devil has tried to throw into your life. Remember that when you forgive, you disempower your abuser. When you forgive, when all of the ill will is gone, you have disempowered the abuser. You have disempowered the one who has tried to hurt you. You've taken the sting away from the death that they have tried to bring into your life. It's vital, saints. It is urgent that we forgive. All right. By the way, this, this matter should be a central part of our spiritual lives. Central. It should, be the, it should be the main, one of the main things we do. Like if we've not done this yet, it should be our main and primary focus. Lord, give me the grace to show mercy and forgiveness. Show them the kingdom. Show them your love. Show them your grace. Let them experience the saving power of Jesus Christ that you gave to me. Because if you're still calling people out for what they've done in the past, this is nothing but a sinner calling a sinner a sinner. Number six, be afflicted and mourn. Understand that these demons can cause you to develop a casual attitude towards your sin, including what we just talked about. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm, I'm working on forgiving. I, I'm, I'm still working on it. Well, no, hold on. What do you mean you're still working on it? Do you realize that if you died today with unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, according to the testimony of several scriptures, that that is what will keep you away from the Jesus you say you love? 
If you want authority and power, if you want freedom over demonic operations in your life, I'm just letting you know these are the things we have to do. We've got to do it. And I'm not speaking to you as a person who's never had people uh, do things to me and, and operate my life in a demonic way. But still, I had, to, I had to learn to do this. Like, Lord, show them Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know whether that prayer is going to be answered for them or not. I know that God will introduce the gospel to every single one of them. But I don't know if they're going to say yes. But still, Lord, bring them into the kingdom. Lord, heal their hearts, heal their minds. They did terrible things. But even Jesus, when he was on the cross, being nailed to the cross, contended for mankind. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. God's not asking us to do something he himself wouldn't do. Father, forgive them. The ones who lied about you, Father, forgive them. The ones who abused you, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't. I was looking at the life of a person who, who was a, just an all-around horrible individual. He committed heinous crimes against children. And it's like, how does a person get that kind of mind? What is it about this person? How could they traffic people? How could they get involved in sex trafficking against children? But then when you look further at this person's life, I learned, when I look further at this person's life, I learned something. Oh, they were trafficked. Oh, they were abused. Wait a minute. Something made them the way they are. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Be afflicted and mourn means that we get rid of and let go of the casual attitude of, of sin that may be in our lives, that, that blunt our emotions and our remorse. We, we know we, we're people who just don't have remorse for our own sins anymore. Remorse, sorrow, and our emotions become, become almost like a dull. Because of the sins that we willfully commit. And it causes us to, 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 it says here, causes us to develop defense mechanisms like laughing and acting foolishly or making jokes about sinful behaviors or, or the misfortune of others. I remember I was watching, I was watching, um, you remember the show America's Funniest Home Videos? I was watching it and I was just laughing and laughing. Thought it was hilarious because, you know, some skier fell down the hill and they were just, you know, rolling and, you know, banging their head on the ground. And I'm just cracking up, right? Because it looked funny. And Thomas, my son, was little at the time. And he's watching me watch the show. And he says, I don't think it's funny that people are just standing there getting hurt all the time. I looked at him like, wait a minute. Am I laughing at the misfortune of others? Like if I were rolling down that hill with skis flying all over the place, right? How would I feel if someone was just standing there laughing at me or watching it on TV uh, over and over again? Look at that guy fall, right? No, but we, we tend to develop these defense mechanisms where looking at the demise of others seems to make us feel better about ourselves. That's why when preachers fall, so many people have so much to say. 
Why? Because it makes them feel better about themselves. It makes them feel more righteous. Oh, that person thought that they, they, they called themselves a man of God and they were involved in this mess and they shouldn't have been doing that. And it's like sometimes we even judge preachers by the same sins we commit ourselves. And listen, I'm going I'm to tell you something. Some of these guys and these ladies who have fallen, yes, they've done terribly. It's true. But oftentimes these are the very same people who were standing with you when you were going through your mess. They were showing you patience. They were showing you mercy. They were showing you grace. And then they fall and you show judgment. That's just, the, like, that's just the, how the church has been. Um, and we're going to talk about judgments in just a minute. Be afflicted and mourn. You must have remorse for what you have done and confess your sin and failures. Now, I want to really quickly look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, because I want to dive into this a little bit more. It says here, 2 Corinthians 7, Paul is writing to the Corinthians who was a, they were a very carnal church. Gifted, but carnal. Y'all remember that in absolute surrender? How God can use you mightily. You can be hyper gifted and still have about you a carnality. Like you can actually do both. You can operate in giftedness and yet still be carnal. Because you know what? When you're standing in front of a person, you're doing healing ministry. Let's say you're gifted in healing ministry. And you're laying hands on a sick who do you think that healing gift is for? It's for the person being prayed for. God loves them. So he'll use you. Being used is not a sign of God's approval. It just means that there was a need that existed and God chose to fulfill that need through you. Giving is another one. If you have a gift of giving sacrificially, what do you think? Is the gift for the one who has the gift, the, the ability, or is the gift for the one who is the recipient? Of course, it's the recipient. If you need a miracle and someone comes along who operates in a gift of miracles, the gift is not for the person who does the miracle. The gift is for the one who needs the miracle. You can be carnal. And operate in gifts. But that's not God's intention. It's not what he wants. So anyway, the Corinthian church was a very carnal church, but a very gifted church. So gifted to the point that Paul had to set out some rules and regulations as to how they were functioning in their gift. And so he writes to them, he says, I made you sorry with a letter. And I do not repent. Although I did repent. For I received that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, now that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed unto repentance. Sorrow unto repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow works repentance. Repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world works death. 
The world can have remorse, but it leads to nowhere. Nowhere but death. But as a believer, godly sorrow leads us. It gives us instruction as to what to do with this wellspring of sorrow. Have you ever seen a person that was so sorrowful sorrowful, and so angry at things that have happened in their past? And I would say, listen, if you're that sorrow, repent. Repent. There is a location of sin in your heart that needs to be repented of. I know you're sorrowful over all that's happened to you. Repent. What I've noticed about the saints is this. We have become accustomed to and even expert at the idea of weeping over what has been done to us. The saints can weep and cry over all that's happened to them. But where are the saints who weep over their own sins? Where are the saints that weep over their own transgression and the impurity and depravity of their own heart? Because that is what God responds to. But it says here, behold, the selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yes. What clearing of yourselves. Yes. What indignation. Yeah. What fear. Yeah. I'm reading. I'm literally reading the scripture saying this. Yeah. Uh, what, what vehement desire. Yeah. What zeal. Yeah. What revenge. In all things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So I want to I go over that little list that he gives right there really, really quickly. Um, because godly sorrow doles out these things number one carefulness earnest diligence direct focus when godly sorrow comes you're not distracted by things around you not distracted by the things of this world you're focused on freedom number two clearing it's the word apologia, which is where we get our apologetics from. Um, it's a verbal defense, but it speaks to the idea of winning the argument, meaning that 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 you're cleared. Imagine, imagine, folks, imagine being cleared, free. Imagine the state of your soul being clear. The slate has been wiped clean. Indignation, irritation against sin. You're not my friend anymore. Heard somebody say, God will deliver you from your enemies. He will not deliver you from your friends. Fear again, dread against sin. To the point where even when the opportunity for sin approaches itself, you're like Joseph in Genesis, right? You flee that opportunity for sin. Even First John tells us, flee youthful lust. You get away from it. You don't put yourself in the position where sin is even possible. Flee. If you don't feel like you can be trusted by yourself, then don't be alone. No, get around someone. Make a phone call. If you don't feel like you can you can have your phone or your your computer by yourself for any amount of time, then find someone to be accountable to. This is what I mean by a dread against sin. If you don't think that you're going to be able to be truthful in a conversation, then you better hold off on that conversation until you get your heart right before God. Godly sorrow. Vehement desire. That speaks to the idea of longing for him. 
Zeal, excitement of mind and a fervor of spirit. Zeal. All of a sudden, godly sorrow is bringing forth zeal. Why? Because you're finally getting past this idea of walking in this sinful lifestyle, zeal, and then revenge. I hate when I do something that I know was in opposition to what God has said. It is the worst feeling in the world. It's horrible when you've sinned and you know you've sinned. It could be a lie. It could be a lust. It could be a covetousness. It can be a bitterness. It can be a rage, but it's a horrible feeling. And God says here, well, revenge. Second Corinthians 10, 6 says, having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Meaning submitting yourself to God, going right back to that beginning part, submitting yourself to God is revenge against everything you've ever done wrong against God. I don't care how deep the sin, you're submitting and obedience to God is a fighting back. It is a revenge. It is the opportunity to win back the ground that you've lost. All right, so that all of that was was number Number five, which talks about pure, I'm sorry, number six, be afflicted and mourn. So now we're going to go to number seven, humble yourself. Pride will keep any form of sickness or evil spirit in you permanently. If pride is there, that is a wide open door for the enemy to stay right where he is. Sometimes, you know, sometimes people who, who hold that place in your life, um, as a, a spiritual accountability or, or authority in your life um, may, may say, hey, you're dealing with something in your life and we need to really pray through it so that you can be free. Now, this is a, a, a tough one because sometimes we don't see that same thing in ourselves, but other people may be able to testify, oh yeah, that's there. It's there. And so there's times that we have to actually say, okay, I don't see it, but Lord, if it's there, it's like when David said, search me and see if there be any wicked way in me, meaning that we don't always know if the wicked way is there. We don't always see it ourselves. We don't see the entire culmination of, of things wrong with us in our lives. If I have broccoli in my teeth, I will not see the broccoli in my teeth. Other people will see it. I will not. There are things you're currently dealing with right now. That you don't see, but other people can see it. So we have to be very careful when, when a, a parent or a spiritual leader or someone who got a sent into your life for accountability says, hey, this needs to be worked on. Just because you don't see it does not mean it's not there. Just because you don't see it does not mean it's not there in a huge way, in a way that can completely debilitate your walk with God. And this is where a lot of people fall because they'll say something like, well, pastor said this is there, but I don't, I don't see what he's talking about. And all the while I'm standing off to the side with, with, with literally like feeling tears in my eyes because it's like this person is not going to get free. They're not. But I will be there to pick up the pieces when you fall. And then they fall. And then I, you know, go there to pick up the pieces. It's an interesting job. All right. 
But pride, pride is what causes you to stop repenting. Pride is the sin that prohibits you from repenting. It's the sin that prohibits you from going to God and weeping and wailing and mourning. It's the sin that stops you. Pride. Pride will be a factor in your unforgiveness. Pride is that sin that establishes in you a moral superiority over other people. Let your first be last and your last first. It's designed to inhibit godly sorrow so that you can be content in yourself just as you are. Pride helps you to be content in yourself just as you are as dark spirits laugh with you all the way to hell. All the way. I posted something on One Body um, late last night um, about, from Francis Chan. He talks about the idea of Christians going to hell. It's really good. You, sh- you should watch. It's the second time I posted it. Um, I really would like for you to watch that message. All right. So humble yourself. It says in James, it says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And what will he do? He will lift you up. He'll lift you up. That's what God, that's what God does. He specializes in lifting you up. And see, this will keep you from backsliding. You know, I think I, I said it on Friday that people don't backslide anymore I mean, many people don't backslide to go back into the world. They don't. What people do now is they backslide from one church to another church that appeases their dark desires. They'll backslide to a church that'll put up with the mess that you were trying to get free from at your former church. So people backslide to church. Or they'll find a church that that, that fits their own Unique need, right? Like, you know, if you want to, if you want to fornicate, go to a church that, that, that closes their eyes to that, you know? Um, you know, if you want to get involved with, with uh, uh, homosexuality, find yourself a church with a rainbow flag. If you, you know, if you want to be greedy and, and, and if you want to be, uh, uh, um, what do you call it, um, materialistic, then find yourself a church that's very materialistic, that, that focus. People always look for churches that appease to their, their own wants and desires. But like I said, if you are a believer, if you want to be a problem for the devil, you ought to have nothing to lose. Nothing. Number eight, do not speak negatively about yourselves or others. Now, this is to, this is talk to yourself and speech about other people, but spirits will, will spend much of their time degrading and, and causing you to nitpick and criticize yourself and others. Now, that's, that's true. I, I've, I've ministered at churches or even, even here um, where I knew that what I was saying was being nitpicked. What I was saying was being evaluated and, 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 and it just, just picked at. Um, but the spirits will also use factual negativity against you by reminding you of past failures and poor choices. You ever have the devil do that? Where the devil comes against you? Not with lies, because you could just say, the devil, you're a liar. But what happens when the devil starts speaking facts? It's true. What he said was true. It wasn't the truth, but it's true. It's factual. And he'll hold that over your head all the time, but the truth, the truth makes us free. Agreeing with those spirits, though, will allow them to remain in you until the day you die. We cannot agree with the adversary when it comes to what he speaks to our souls. 
See, these types of soul sicknesses that we go through, they happen mainly because we've not learned to A, submit ourselves to God, B, resist the devil. Imagine now a life where the devil has actually fled from you. Imagine waking up tomorrow morning and every demonic operation that's ever functioned in your life has actually run away. James chapter 4 gives us the reality of that. See, before I, before I conclude, I want to I just read this. It says, critical spirits come into play where the, the, the word was not designed for you to focus on other people's performance. If you have judgments against other people, understand that it's more important that you examine yourself and ask yourself if you're holding yourself to the standard you have set for others. Are you holding yourself to the standard you have set for other people? And then ask yourself, do you have the authority to set any kind of standard for other people? Did God call you to do that? This is where that's where humility comes in, too. But see, if you want to be free from demonic operations, there is a behavioral responsibility that you have in order to be free. Last week, we talked about the type of person who gets prayers answered. This scripture, these scriptures in James chapter four, they speak of exactly what that looks like. There are behaviors. There are certain standards by which we live. And we have to, friends, we have to live by them. We can't live in agreement with the enemy and think that somehow God's mighty deliverance is coming. Change camps. Humble yourself. Lord, I'm undone. Lord, I don't always get it right. Lord, I'm not always right. I woke up this morning praying like, Lord, let your grace be sufficient to wash me and cleanse me and keep me. I'm not always right. I don't always get it right. None of us do. However, we must be postured where we're not continually going in the wrong direction. Remember the scripture that says that be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man sows that shall he also reap. Right. For he that sows to the flesh shall reap corruption, shall of the flesh reap corruption. And he that sows to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life eternal. Well, where are you sowing? Are you sowing to the, to the flesh, to personal will? Or are you sowing to the spirit? This is what's important. It's not, it's not everything you've done right or wrong. It's where are you presently sowing? What is it about you? Is your heart yearning towards God and drawing near to him? Or is your heart yearning and drawing near to, to, the, to the sinful activity? of your life. If only we learn how to surrender our hearts and get ourselves out of the way. When we learn how to do that, we then learn how to close the door from demonic operations in our life. And I'm going to tell you, this is why people come to the altar to be prayed for and they don't get free. It's not because the minister wasn't anointed enough. 
it's not because the preacher wasn't walking in power. The Lord's arm is not short that he cannot save, nor is his ear dull that he cannot hear. But the scripture says, but your sins have separated you from your God. That's what it is. That's why there's no freedom. That's why there's the public persona and the private sin, the public face and the private torment. That's what it is. And if indeed you're still dealing with so much of that stuff, then there must be a brokenness all the more. You, you ever get to the point where you say, God, what else does God want from me? I'm already living holy. I'm already living righteous. I'm already praying. I'm already serving. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's your problem. You think you're good. You think you're good. But it's when we learn to weep and wail and sorrow and mourn. It's when we learn to stop thinking we're good. Oh, and my flesh dwells no good thing. No good thing. You can say, now, nah, you know, you need to get this together. Yeah, you're right. I do. Now, I'm seeing some things in your life that I think you need to fix. Yep, you wouldn't be wrong. There are things in my life that I need to fix, that they need to be fixed. Same with you. See, there is none righteous. No. Not one. When you read that scripture, there is none righteous. No, not one. It suggests a pause. There is none righteous. Now, let me think. No. Not one. Not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, this is not about capability. This is not about works. This is about where is your heart yearning? What are you longing for? What are you drawing near towards? What are you sowing to? That's what this is about. And when we are cleansed, remember we, we talked about it last week, I think. Um, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who gets to do it? He that has clean hands, a pure heart. That, that might be what James was referring to when he, you know, uh, by the Holy Spirit penned these scriptures. We have to get to this place, y'all. Get ourselves out of the way. And be the type of people who can actually get prayers answered. Be the type of people who actually get God's attention when we say, Father, in the name of Jesus. The blessed hope and the glorious appearing of God. Thank you so much for listening. Your generous support enables us to continue to fulfill our mission to win the church to Christ through unceasing prayer, intentional discipleship, and missional living. You can offer additional financial support by texting 918-300-4680 or by going to our website at wearefirstlove.com. Until we meet again, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior. Always remember your first love.